my father came home and I told him I wanted to be a photographer and and he looked at me, I, he said, are you out of your mind? He said, photography, he said, what, what are you talking about? You know, he said, that's a hobby. Hmm. And that's what photography was then back in the 40s. And, you know, it was a hobby. Right? It was actually, mostly white people did, you know. Yeah. Um, being a photographer, it was a hobby. That wasn't a job. What's going on, y'all? You have just tuned in to the Black Shutter Podcast. On this show, I invite black photographers, filmmakers, editors, and creative business folks to discuss their experiences and share their wisdom. You will hear about their work, their challenges, and their inspirations. My name is Idris Talib Solomon, a creative director, photographer, and filmmaker based in Brooklyn, New York. So if you dig photography and you love the culture, keep your mind open and your headphones locked. This is the Black Shutter Podcast. In the 1950s, photography was considered a hobby that only white people pursued. It was not a job, and it was not something black folks really considered. Cameras and film were expensive, education was expensive, and it was rampant racism within the industry. When we think about the term paving the way, it means you are usually one of the first to do something of importance. Our guest today, born in Columbus, Ohio, navigated that racist environment, and eventually discovered photography, helping to pave the way for black photographers. He believes that the camera is a tool to do research, and that belief has led him to assist Gordon Parks at Life Magazine, become the first black union photographer in the film industry, as well as becoming one of the co-founders of the Kamoyenge Collective. Adja Cowens, welcome to the Black Shutter Podcast. How you feeling out there, sir? I'm feeling really good today. I have to, I mean, that's great to hear. And I have to tell you, man, it is definitely an honor to be speaking with you today because you are one of the OGs that helped to pave the way for so many of us, you know, black and brown photographers. So thank you for, for spending some time with us today. You're welcome. So tell us, where are you calling from? Uh, I live in Bridgeport, Connecticut right now. Okay, you're in the Northeast. Yes. All right, and um, where are you from originally? I was originally born in Columbus, Ohio. Ohio, okay. And I grew up there, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, and uh, around what years? What 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 were your, like, growing up years? Around or mm-hmm. the exact year? <laughs> Well, not the, well, you know, not the year you were born, but um, the year you you were a child, you know, like the yeah. The, I, no, I was. I don't have a problem. With that. I was born in 1936, and um, in 11:30 uh, at night. Oh wow! Just before midnight. All right, 1936. Mm-hmm. Wow. So to know that there were. You know, that you were doing photography from so long ago um, during the era where we know there was, and, you know, still is a lot of racism, but racism looked a little bit different, a little bit more in your face. It sure did. You know, it sure did. Mm-hmm. What was life like growing up in Columbus, Ohio? Well, I grew up with a big family, so a lot of that stuff. <clears throat> 
um, I was kind of protected from because I grew up with a really big family. Mm -hmm. But racism was still going on. I can remember uh, seeing in the black newspapers, and they were green at that time, called the Green Journal, pictures of black people being hung down south, which it stayed with me. It affected my whole life. And it still affects me, those those pictures, to me, uh, was a shock. I mean, I knew racism existed, but I was a child. I didn't really understand what it was until I grew up, you know. But I had a lot of that um, protected because of my family, you know. I never worried about that somebody was going to hang me or capture me or something. There were too many family people around me. Mm. But it, those images disturbed me. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, um, and it sounds like in that in that time period, they were just showing the photos in the newspapers. That There was no... Oh, was, yeah, yeah. But this was in the black newspapers. The uh -huh. white people were not showing this kind of stuff. They were all showing pictures of black people with big lips and being cooked in pots and tires and, you know, swinging through the jungle. Mm -hmm. That's, they were putting negative images of black people in the papers. But the black newspapers were showing the truth of what was really going on. And um, because my family, you know, they got those papers. I had my grandfather and my uncles and them that worked on the railroad. Well, my grandfather was an oiler, which was a a job mostly reserved for white people at that time. You know, back in those days, um, machinery, most moving machinery had to be oiled mm. because it would jam up if it wasn't oiled. And Elijah McCoy invented the first system whereby motion, uh, things in motion, machinery in motion, could be oiled while it was running. Now, the person who invented that was Elijah McCoy. And people used to say, well, that's not the real McCoy because a lot of people ripped him off. Mm -hmm. But he was the inventor of that machinery. So when machines would run for a certain amount of time, and especially trains, locomotive trains at that time, which was a new thing, they had different stations where they stopped, and these guys had these long cans so they reach in and oil this machinery of these engines, and that's the kind of work that my grandfather did. Wow! So when you were looking at these newspapers, you had the white newspaper and you had the black newspaper, right? Mm -hmm. It sounds yeah. like visually they were both different. What did that do for you? as far as how you saw media being presented to you at that early age? You know, you had the white media and you well, had the black media. Well, I knew all about the black. I mean, you know, my family was very positive black. I mean, when I was a little kid, my mother read Paul Lawrence Dunbar to us and all the stories that I knew of black people. We were a black proud family. So I knew Roland Hayes. I mean, I saw Roland Hayes. I saw... Paul Robeson, I saw Marion Anderson, you know, they were real to me. So the newspapers, we knew the newspapers were lying and not printing the truth. 
I mean, I was a news carrier. I carried the dispatch and I carried the citizens. Two white papers, I was a news carrier. Oh. But, you know, the black newspapers were not printing the same thing. And so, and my grandfather got the paper and so did my uncle and uh, my family. So we saw the lies that were being told. You know, my mother and father were for, they weren't for integration. They were for separate and equal. You know, they felt that integration was not going to be good for the race. Okay. And that was back in, in the 40s, you know, and 30s and the 40s. And so, you know, I was born toward the end of the Second World War. So I remember a lot of those things, you know, the stories and the uh, metal drives in school. Because anything that had metal, they had to save to make bullets and tanks for the guys of war. Oh, I mean, even the best cuts of meat were given to, you know, the men at war. You went to the grocery store those days. They didn't have supermarkets yet. Uh, and uh, you could only buy so much food. Every family in America had a stamp book that had pictures of foot soldiers Tanks, airplanes, ships, um, bombs, things like that. And you could only buy so much food in the market. And every family had these these books. Each family member, including the children, had a book so you could go to the store and they would tear out so many stamps. And you could only buy so much food. So we had a big family, so we were able to buy a lot of food. My grandmother and grandfather <clears throat> my uncle and aunt and everybody. So we pulled everything together, mm. you know, and traded in these stamps. Every family had it, not only black people, but white people too. You know, America was poor. America was, you know, at war. A lot of things were rationed out, you know. Uh, gas was cheap back then. You could buy gas, <laughs> five, five cents a gallon. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah, you could fill up your tank, man, and drive for a week. Wow. But, you know, you go to the market, you know, and my father, we had a farm where we grew all our food. And then we would sell food, you know, to the neighbors and give stuff away to the family. But, you know, a bushel of corn, a whole bushel of corn was a dollar. You know, you could buy all this food. Food was not expensive. It was cheap. All mm -hmm. these things, you know. Everything was really, really expensive. Was butter, okay. you know. And then they came out with margarine. That's when they came out with margarine and spam. Spam was a hodgepodge of some kind of meat. I hated <laughs> it. I hated spam. It's Jello. Yeah. Jello jell meat. Yeah, yeah. But the Hawaiians, when I went to Hawaii, my brother married Hawaiian. They thought spam was a delicacy. Would you like a ham sandwich? Would you like spam them? Hated it. <laughs> <laughs> and margarine came in these little plastic bags that had a little pellet of dye in there, and you mixed it all together oh, and then you cut it up. That was, supposed to be, that was butter. It was called margarine. You know? Wow. That's the and beginning. They still have margarine. Yeah, they still do. Uh, it sounds like that might be around like the beginning of the processed food stage. It was. Mm -hmm. During the, after the war, that's when all this stuff started. Like, uh, you could buy things on time mm -hmm. um, because people wanted to be automated, you know. You didn't have um, washing machines and 
refrigerators and all that came after the war. You know, when I was growing up, you had the icebox. And the ice man would come around once a week and big, put a big cube of ice in the bottom of this, you know, box. And it would keep things cool. They could never freeze them, but they would be cool. Mm-hmm. All the foods would stay better in the icebox. So when I talked to my kids coming, I said, oh, give me something out of the icebox. I said, Dad, it's not an icebox. It's a refrigerator. <laughs> you know, well, they didn't have those when I was coming up. It came later on. Refrigerators, washing machines, sweepers, uh, electric fans, all that electronical stuff came after the Second World War. Of course, people thought they were hot. It was a big deal. You know, oh, oh, you still have an icebox? You don't have a refrigerator? <laughs> <laughs> people were lauded, lauded it over, you know, if you didn't have the latest yeah. whatever it was. That still happens. It was always coming out with that still happens yeah, they today. they come down with some new business job. Yeah. Well, now it's electronic. Yeah, exactly. You know, what kind of cell phone do you have? Oh, you don't have an Apple? You have an off-brand? Mm-hmm. Just, you know. Same thing. So, mm-hmm. Same thing. So you mentioned that, uh, you know, this was like the war, the war, you know, um, ending of World War II. And at the time, mm-hmm. not even sure if the, how long the war is going to go on, right? And you, you said mm-hmm. your, your grandfather, you know, it was an oiler. And I think you said mm-hmm. some, maybe like some uncles worked on the railroad. And mm-hmm. so it sounds like, I, and you were a, a carrier, a news carrier. And so it uh, sounds yeah, like. Paper, paper boy. Paper boy, right? the paper boy. So it's like mm-hmm. you had the paper boy. You had, you, you had the option of going into the war as a, as a soldier. Uh, you saw your grandfather as an oiler. You know, um, these were like some of the jobs that you were exposed to as a young person. Right. You also mentioned coming from a proud family, right? So I yes. wonder, how can you, like, can you tell us what professions were available to you? Like, coming from a, a proud family, you know, they, they always ask young kids, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? right? Seeing these professions from the older men in your family and then growing up in a proud family, what did you think you were going to be when you grow up or what did you want to be when you grew up? I didn't want to do any of those jobs. I don't, my father used to tell me, don't do what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So I I thought, yeah, younger on, that I was going to be a gambler or a pimp, something like that, because in my neighborhood, those are the guys that had money. Mm-hmm. You know? But um, I didn't know really what I wanted to be. I mean, I was a Cub Scout and a Boy Scout, and I did all all those things, you know, and uh, I'd go for the, to the store for people in my neighborhood in those days. Mrs. Thompson, lady lived down the street from us. Would she called me Sunny Boy, and she called my mother and asked her if I could go to the store for her. And she gave me, you know, some dollar bills and you know, paper bag. And um, I would go to the store and I'd buy liquor and cigarettes for her. Hmm. And the people this is in our neighborhood, so nobody said, "Oh, this boy's buying liquor." It wasn't like that. He said, "I'm buying this from Mrs. Thompson." Okay, you know, they give me a bottle of liquor and. Whatever it was that she needed, cigarettes, whatever. And I would go to the store for people. So I was kind of like the neighborhood kid. I ran around, did things for people in the neighborhood. I used to ride on Mr. Cundiff's uh, wagon with the horses pulling the ice wagon. And he would go around the neighborhood giving people ice for their uh, ice boxes. So, you know, and I had a big family. I had three brothers and a sister. So. Hmm. You know, we were real tight. Nobody messed with us, you know, later on in school. 
somebody messed with us, you know, they had a problem because it's all you and them cowards, boys. That's right. That's right. Don't mess. I got three brothers. <laughs> and my sister was tough. When I was in grade school, my sister used to beat these kids up to be messing with me, you know. So um, wow, that's great. I was almost like little Lord Fotheroy. <laughs> so coming from that big family, how like were any of them in, involved or interested in the arts? Um, no, not really. Um, I had two uncles who were musicians, you know, my first trumpet I got from my uncle. And uh, sometimes, you know, they would play with the out band when Duke Ellington came to town sometime, they would play in the band. My oh, uncle nice. Sherman played saxophone. So, um, at Valley Dale was the name of the place. And, uh, so, and, but nobody was, you know, an artist. I didn't. I didn't have any idea about being an artist. I didn't know what that was. You know, my mother had you know pictures in the house. You know, uh, and my grandmother, and grandfather had you know family pictures on the walls. Maybe maybe some picture of a Joe Jesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody had that. Mm-hmm. But no, what I call pictures of of art. You know, so I didn't have any idea about being an artist. And when I went to school, I, I went because I wanted to be a photographer um, because that seemed to be, it wasn't a job. I, I you know, I, I wanted to get away from home mm-hmm. <laughs> and go to college. So, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had been studying music and, and I was probably on a trajectory to be a musician because I was pretty good. But, um, yeah, that didn't happen, but, you know, some things happened and I refused to do something. Anyway, my sister's boyfriend had a magazine that year when I got out of high school. And I was looking at it and it said in there, Ohio University gives degree in photography. And so my mother was an amateur photographer and my uncle Wilbur was an amateur photographer. So I thought, yeah. So I showed it to my mother. And uh, she said, well, we have to show it to your father. So my father came home, and I told him I wanted to be a photographer. And, and he looked at me, I, he said, are you out of your mind? He said, photography? He's, he said, what, what are you talking about? You know, he said, that's a hobby. Hmm. And that's what photography was then, back in the 40s. And, you know, a hobby is right. Actually, mostly white people did, you know. Yeah. Um, being a photographer, it was a hobby. That wasn't a job. So he had fit. Why don't you do something like be a doctor or a lawyer or something important? That's not important. Kodak makes a camera. They send you the film. You send it back, and they send you a new roll of film. What are you talking about? He didn't understand. I didn't either. Mm-hmm. But I knew that, um, you know, I I could get away from home and I could do something that I thought was easy. Be a photographer. Anybody can take pictures and put the camera down. Stand over there. Okay. Smile. Oh, that looks good. Oh, you have beautiful legs. You know, that's what I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) I was just thinking about, you know, it's going to be a serious thing. I don't think it really became serious for me until my junior, junior year. I did what most students do at that time. I partied the first year, partied the second year, you know, I was having fun. Way to college, you know. 
my grandfather gave me his old car, so I, I was big on campus. I had a car. Right. Drive girls around, right. you know, it was big. But Ohio was still very, you know, it was very racist, you know. In Ohio at that time, at Ohio University, we didn't get, we couldn't get haircuts in the town. They wouldn't cut our hair, and there were places that we couldn't go because we were black, you know. In fact, I was president the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity at that time. I was president of the Little Brothers Club, the Sphinx, and we started a riot down here by going to these places and sitting in. Anyway, and we did some of the first sit-ins in the 50s, 1953, 52, 53, 54, like that. Uh-huh. So, um, 54, 55, 56, I graduated in 58. Well, I didn't really graduate. I left. And I went back to summer school, and I, I left again because I just couldn't, I, you know. And I realized I really didn't need a degree to do photography but they gave me my degree in oh, 2019. They said, you've done all this work. You've been all, you know, we're proud of you. Come back and get your degree. You know, you've done all the work. I don't know why you quit, but I quit because I was just tired, you know, mm-hmm. of the racism. And, and just the whole idea of being in Ohio, just, you know, when you got out of high school, then you were looking for a job to work in one of the factories. You get married and have a family, and you worked in one of the factories there, Timken Roller Bearing, in one of the airplane factories, Ford, one of those places, and you raised your family. It was a good job, paid good, you know. You could buy a car and build a house and raise your family. But I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to stay in Ohio. I, I had a very adventurous nature. And yeah, that's I what I'm. The rest of the world, right? And that's what I'm really so um, interested in is. What what exists in you that made you say, you know, I'm not going to follow this traditional route that I've seen, like, the older people in my family follow? Like, you know, um, what was your earliest memory of photography? What was something that made you, that clicked when you saw that, that ad in the magazine that said, yeah, I'm going to go be a photographer? Like, what was that spark for you? Well, I wanted to get away from home. I didn't think about even what it was like to be a photographer. <clears throat> I just wanted to get, you know, away from home, you know, and experience something else in the world. Because I'd been a paper boy and I'd traveled around the neighborhood and I'd been out. I'd been a few places. And when I was in high school, me and my boys, we used to go down to Chillicothe to race cars and we were all into cars in Ohio at that time, you know. And so I, I wanted to see what was going on in the rest of the world. You know, I didn't want to stay in Columbus. And, you know, I was supposed to be in Mary. I had a beautiful girlfriend, beautiful woman. And um, we were going to get married and raise a family. And I was going to work at one of the companies. And her best friend's friend is a little older than her. He was a truck driver. He made big money at that time. He was making $1,000 a week. That was a lot of money. Oh, wow. Yeah. In the 50s. So he said, you decided to get on the road with me and be a truck driver. He said, you can have a nice life. You have to work at the factory. So I went on the road with him a few times, you know, and I liked it. I was going to be a truck driver. You know, transcontinental, that was money. But somehow, I don't know, all of that just kind of got boring for me, I, I wanted to do something else. I wanted to be out in the world. I wanted to see what was going on 
somewhere else, you know. I wanted to go to Mexico and I wanted to go all these other places, you know. So I just had that kind of nature. And my uncle kind of spurred me on because he was a traveler. And I was named after him. His name was Wilbur Watson, my grandfather's oldest son. So <clears throat> my middle name was Wilbur, Adger Wilbur Town. So, you know, he would tell me all about his travels, traveling, and he would hop the trains and be on there with the hobos. So he had an exciting life. And I thought, this is great. You know, he traveled, he worked in the circus. He was a hobo. He's a confidence man. He's a cowboy. He's a detective. He did all this stuff. And I and he used to tell me these stories. So I was, I was lit. I wanted to see what was out there in the world, you know. Mm-hmm. I ain't care about white people, what white people are doing. <laughs> I know the way. I'm there. I, you know, I was interested in living my life. I was always interested in living my life. You know, not somebody else's life. It sounds so, like um, it sounds like that, right? Because you know, you didn't oh, yeah. you didn't follow in the the footsteps of the people who you saw around you. You know, um, no, I wanted to do something different. Yeah. So, what was life like when you got to the campus at Ohio University? Well, when I got there, the first day I met some friends, but there were only fifteen black students out of a body of. 10,000 students. Oof. It's insane. You know, so, and it was a state school. And so, um, we got to know each other right away, all the black students. Yeah. Because to. you see somebody going across campus and you say, hey, it wasn't like people are now. You know, <clears throat> everybody, black people, they stand off. You know, I'm better, or, you know, I'm lighter. And, you know, there's those days. If you saw another black person, I can remember my mother and father went over to my friend EJ's family, and they said, hi, where are you guys from? So we're from, you know, we're from Dayton. Well, Dayton was only 75 miles down the road from Columbus, so we got to be fast friends. And then my roommate's family, and they were from Cleveland, and these were all places that we knew, you know. Because, uh, you know, when I was really little, we used to travel. My grandfather would go back and forth, you know, travel uh, to Cleveland, Ohio, where my uncle lived. And we all get in the car and go. You know, so I'd been used to traveling in a car, going to different places. We drove to Chicago. In those days, people would want to go somewhere. they drive. You know, they, you know, poor people, they didn't take the airplane or, you know, even the bus. I hate the bus. But I loved to you know, drive. And my uncle got a car, and we drove down to South Carolina when my father was born. And, you know, I was used to being on the road. You know, I want to go somewhere. You know, so uh, that was just kind of in my in my blood and in my spirit the idea of traveling. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I got to campus that day, and we met all the different other black families, and I realized then that you know they didn't room black students and white students together. You had to have a black roommate. But because I, you know, worked my way to school, my parents paid some and I worked in school. I lived in what they called the barracks. It wasn't a dorm, it was the old barracks that had been there from an army base. And so I roomed with um, a white dude from Cleveland who thought he was black. <laughs> he combed his hair, carry on, and he liked to dance with the black girls. Him and another brother from uh, Cleveland. We all threw, three roomed in, you know, or these barracks, you know. 
because that was the cheapest rent for us at that time. We couldn't afford to live in the dorms. The dorms were more expensive. Mm-hmm. But then they tore those down. The next year, they built a new uh, hall, Bush Hall, and I moved in there. But, uh, you know, it was 75 miles from Columbus, so it was an easy drive, you know. And during my last years there, and my grandfather had given me his party, I'd drive back and forth on the weekend from, uh, you know, there to Ohio. And in fact, we loved jazz a lot, my group of friends. And when Miles Davis was at the Vanguard or at Carnegie Hall, and uh, or, or um, Monk was at the Five Spot, we would drive to New York on the weekend and do the jazz scene and drive back to school Monday morning, sleepy as hell for class. Wow. We moved around. You know, so uh, it was all in my blood to travel. So when I got out of school and I came to New York, I had joined the reserves when I was in high school, the Navy reserves, and I was supposed to report back in when I got out and do active duty. In those days, if you were a teenager, it was a law that once you reached 18, 17, 18, you had to do four years in service. Uh It was a law. So I had been in the reserves in high school, so I had to supposed to do two more years in the Navy. But I came to New York and started working with Gordon Parks. I was like, yeah, I didn't work with Gordon Parks, man. I'm making money, you know, mm-hmm. making $75 a week. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> I was big time. $75 a week? Man. I told my mother, I said, I'm going to be rich. I said, if I can save $50 a week, man, I'm going to be rich. I said, I'm making something. And then I got a job making $250 a week. And I wow. thought, this is the right. I'm going to buy myself a TR, a Triumph. I love motorcycles. I said, I'm going to buy me a TR, and I'm going to be on the road. <laughs> and then my mother called me, you know, and said, <laughs> you got a letter from the White House. And I said, what do you mean? She said, you have a letter addressed to you from the White House. I said, well, read it, Mama. She said, it's addressed to you. <laughs> I said, read the letter. So she opened it up and said, greetings from your friends and neighbors at the White House. Uh-huh. You've been selected among the very fortunate few to serve in the armed forces of the United States of America. Report the induction ceremony, and they had the date and everything. It's supposed to be the next week. I'm in New York. I said, oh, God. So it was seventy five dollars that time to fly back. They didn't have jets; they had a prop plane. Mm-hmm. And so I flew back, and I went to see my old CO, and I said, "Man, they were going to get me in the army." He said, "Well, you didn't report back here when you got out of school, and so we sent your name to the draft board." I said, "I don't want to go in the army." My uncles always told me because they were in the navy. They said, "Do not get in the army. Crawl mm-hmm. around in your belly with a gun." I said, oh, God, what am I going to do? So I said, Chief, I did not want to go. He said, well, I don't know how I can help you. He said, well, okay, Collins, you want to? He said, if you go in right away, he said, we'll scratch the Army and you can go in the Navy. So that next week, I didn't get back to New York, get my stuff, man. I got right into the Navy, and I went to Virginia Beach, Virginia, where I did all my most of my two years there. And the Ocean Naval Air Station in Virginia Beach it was the longest running runway uh, on the East Coast. It was larger than any any. I don't think there was another 
anywhere on the East Coast as long as this, because they tested new airplanes uh, there at that base where I was. Whatever the new fighter planes were, they tested them all there. So that's where I did my uh, two years, and then I came back. Went back to New York. I always wanted to live in New York because one Christmas, my aunt and uncle who lived uh, in the Bronx, he worked at as a red cap, um, Penn Station. Um, so she gave me a picture of the Empire State Building and a little Scotty dog made out of porcelain. And I saw that card and I said, man. And I saw little people. And I said, look how big that guy. I said, oh, I swear I want to live. I want to live in New York. Look at this, man. Nobody can know me, and you know, because we're coming up, and I couldn't do nothing. So I did something my school. My grandmother got it first, and she'd tell my aunt, and then my aunt would tell my mother. By the time I got home, man, I'd get a whipping, or I had to do something because I did something in school, you know. So I said, dang, man, I said I could be free here in New York. So, and so um, that's how I, I was excited about coming to New York. And I lived in New York most of my life. I moved up here to Bridgeport about 10 years ago. Okay. But I lived in New York from the time I got out of school in 1954, from 54 to 1960, uh, I lived in New York. And from then to now, there's a lot of history. You have a lot of experience from then to now. And, uh, oh, yeah. You know, you, you kind of brushed brushed over a very important detail of your your life and your career was that you worked with Gordon Parks. Now, yeah. I know you mentioned, you know, you were in your junior year in Ohio University, and that's when you got serious. So what clicked for you that made you start to take photography serious? And then how did how were you able to then take your skill level and connect with Gordon Parks after you graduate? Like, how, you know, what happened in between there? Well, when I was in school, you know, when I first got to school, I didn't know any anything about the towers. There was a buddy uh, in my hometown who I used to ride around with. He worked for the newspapers as a stringer, and he had a press camera. And uh, he would call me sometimes and say, I got to go do this job. You want to go with me? And I said, yeah, and I'd jump in the car with him. And it was a fire somewhere. He'd go photograph, and then it was in the newspaper. And I thought that was cool, but I wasn't interested in doing that even then. Mm-hmm. But I think that, um, I don't know, I think it was my junior year that I realized that in showing a photograph to somebody and listening to what they had to say about it, it gave me a little window into their head, sort of a cheap psychology, you know? And uh, that got me excited because I could see what they saw and it was something that I knew was there and they saw it. Then that got me excited because I could get into people's minds real easy because they always say, what they, I don't like it or I like it or this or that. Whatever they said, I listened to it, and it gave me a window into people. So that that's what really got me excited about taking pictures, is have what people say about them, you know. And then I asked my teacher, because the first people I saw 
was uh, Ansel Adams and Edward Weston. And these were not books. These were photographs. My teacher, Clarence H. White Jr.'s father, Clarence H. White Sr., was one of the uh, people, one of the artists that showed at 291, which was like um, Stieglitz's gallery on Fifth and Avenue. Stieglitz is like the father of American photography. He's the one that said photography is an art. Mm-hmm. And everybody screamed him down about it. But Stieglitz was, um, that he was the master of, uh, you know, photography as an art. So Clarence H. White Sr. had shown in his gallery. So it was all about photography's personal expression as opposed to having a job. And, uh, but we learned all forms of photography. So I guess it was my junior year, I asked my teacher, Walter Bial, who was like a New York hippie type, you know. And uh, I asked him, are there any black photographers? You know, he said, I think there's a guy at Life Magazine. He said, I don't know any black photographers. He said, I think there's a guy at um, Life Magazine. So they had published, I think it was 1950-something, 53, 54. They had published a book on Life Magazine photographers. And so I bought it, and in the back, when I opened the cover, on the back cover was a picture of Gordon Parks. And so I wrote him a letter and told him I was in school, and um, that I come to New York every now and then for the jazz scene. And so he said to look him up the next time I came. So I called him when I went to New York that my junior year, and he, I went to his house and he looked at my work and he said it's good work, you know. So he said, why don't you call me when you get out of school? So when I got out of school, I was, you know, I wanted to be free. I came to New York. I had twelve dollars in my pocket. And uh, I got on the bus and came to New York, and I was staying at the Y on 34th Street. And I called Gordon, and he said, where are you staying? I said, I'm at the Y. He said, get out of there. Get out of there. <laughs> you know. So he said, just get out of there and come up here. So I went up with my suitcase, you know, and he said, uh, he said, where are you going to stay? I said, well, I don't know. I said, you know, you know, I said, I have an uncle that lives in the Bronx. He said, well, that's not New York. I said, yeah. <laughs> He was living in White Plains, man. So I went up, and um, I mean, he turned the corner, and I saw this black man with a smoking a pipe, driving a Corvette, white Corvette, leather inside, powder blue outside. I said, "Shit, I'm gonna be a photographer." <laughs> that's what that's, that's what Gordon Parks was driving. Oh yeah, man. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Style. I mean, a Corvette at that time. Exactly. Powder blue leather inside. Man, exactly. I was like, damn. All white. I mean, <laughs> and when we got to his house, he had another, another sports car sitting there in a Cadillac, and he lived in uh, White Plains with a drive around, half drive around uh, driveway, oh. and he lived in a split level, which was new in those days, split level house with a swimming pool. Jesus. I was like, whoo. So he said, well, you can just stay here with me and my family and work with me at Life Magazine. And, um, I mean, it was luck, I guess. I don't know. So he, he took me in, and I stayed there all that summer when I got out of school, and I worked with him at Life Magazine. And then I got the letter from my mother about going in the service. I was like, Jesus. Oh, man. So I did that. And by the time I got out of the Navy in two years, I, I was married. 
And uh, I came back to New York, and I called Gordon. I went over and talked with him. And uh, But I didn't work with him again after that. But we remained friends because I think when Gordon Jr. was killed, it really upset Gordon a lot. And Gordon Jr. and I were very close. We were like brothers. When I met him, I lived up there with him. Gordon Jr. and I had a lot of fun together going around, you know. So um, I was on my way to do a movie working with, uh, who was it? I think, um, what was the name of that movie? Faye Dunaway was in it. And I was working with them on this movie, and uh, I got in the car to go to work that morning, and I saw the newspaper, and I usually don't read the newspaper, and I picked it up. And it said Gordon Parks killed, Gordon Parks Jr. killed in Africa. And I started crying. <laughs> I called Gordon on the phone, you know. I said, um, you know, I got out of the car. They didn't have cell phones yet. <laughs> yeah. And I called him on the corner. I said, you know, have you seen the paper? He said, yeah, Jackson. He was in tears. So I got back. I said, I can't go to work. I called him. I said, I can't come today. My brother is just killed, you know. So I went up and I spent the whole day with Gordon. So I think after that, and even before that, Gordon, I was like, you know, son number three, you know. He treated me like a son, you know. Mm -hmm. Clean out the swimming pool, wash the car. Did you always do this, <laughs> do that? You clean out? <laughs> like, yeah, I got work with you all day. Get out there and clean out the pool, you know. <laughs> he reminded me about my own father who was very disciplined and very, yeah. you know, you know, he's a real man, you know, about work and stuff. Yeah, Gordon, was too, like, right? Gordon was a workaholic, man. He didn't play. Mm -hmm. He didn't play. He didn't, people think that Gordon was like some kind of like, uh, you know, house nigger. No, he wasn't. Gordon was a very powerful, mm -hmm. um, individualized uh, man. You know, he'd grown up with racism worse than what I could ever think of. You know, he didn't live in New York. You know, in Harlem, and he did later on, but Gordon grew up with heavy racism out there where he lived. So he had been through a lot, you know. And I think really the main lesson, I guess, that I'm everybody asked me, oh, Gordon was your mentor. Well, he was my mentor in one way, but he didn't teach me photography. I learned photography in school, mm -hmm. you know, four years, you know, when I came to work with him. I worked as his assistant. But uh, I think that what I really learned from Gordon was more important than photography was learning how to take negative energy and turn it into positive work. Hmm. And that was that's what saved him from being a guy who wanted to street and kill some white person. Because, <laughs> you know, I had those tendencies too. And he saw that I was like, you know, I would have short fuse with white people. <laughs> That motherfucker, he can't get past <laughs> <laughs> Choke that motherfucker. He said, what? I'll choke him. Because, you know, the men in my family, I can remember when I was really little, and we went to the um, parade, and I was on my uncle's shoulders, and then we were walking along. I was really little, and he led me down to walk across the street, and this white guy almost ran over me with the car, you know, he didn't stop. And so when he stopped, you know, my uncle went over and pulled the door and took that white guy and whipped his ass right there. Wow. <laughs> and I said, don't the cop the police. He said, I don't care. Can you see this kid? You know, he just pulled him out and whipped his ass right there. Mm. I mean, I just had several incidents like where my uncles 
you know, didn't they take no shit from white people, man, at all. So I grew up with that around me. It's like, you know, you don't take low to nobody, hmm. nobody, ever, you know. So I kind of had those lessons coming up. And Gordon was that kind of man. Gordon was really smooth, though. He's real smooth, you know. Shit could be going on, but you know, he really knew what he was doing. But I learned that lesson from him to use that name. He told me, he says, it's all energy, Jax, you know. He said, take it and use it. Hmm. Don't let it use you. And that's sort of been my sort of standard you know, for the rest of my life was to in negative situations like that. And it's really helped me when I got in the movie business because there was a lot of negative energy in there. As I was the first uh, African-American in the union as a still photographer. Remember why the Italian boys, they were awful shit, man. They always check. You know, they love to crack nigger jokes, what they call nigger jokes. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they think I was going to laugh. And, you know, I said, man, fuck you. I don't hear that shit. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, yeah, so... I came to New York, and, and I, when I came back, I was married, and we moved to Harlem, 150th Street and Cunningham Avenue, and somebody else's apartment because we didn't have enough money to afford our own place. So we lived in somebody's eight-room apartment, and we had two rooms in the back and the use of the bathroom, and we could use the kitchen. My wife would cook and stuff. So I lived that way for a while until I got tired of, you know, Living in somebody's house, we finally moved into another place with Gordon Jr. and his girlfriend down on 80, 79th Street, something like that. Oh, so y'all and were really got close. Our own place. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah was, Me and Gordon Jr. Really were very tight. Yeah, yeah. We were brothers, you know. And because living there with them, you know, they were around my age. Tony was. Uh, his daughter at that time was 16. Gordon, Gordon wouldn't let me take her to the village. So <laughs> I said, Tony and I are going to go down to the village here some jazz because I love those jazz clubs because I was, I was basically still a musician. And uh, Gordon said, no, those people down there, they're blah, 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 blah. He wouldn't let me take her down. <laughs> and then at that time, Tony has his daughter. So Tony was about 16 17 years old at that time. And I was probably 20, you know. I was like, you know, up there. I was a big guy, 20. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I don't know. I came back and I started working in New York, you know, assisting different people, you know. And then finally, um, I got out on my own. And um, I did pretty good. But I got tired of working in the commercial end of photography. So in 1969, I got a um, job to go to Brazil to photograph Brazil's underground filmmakers because they were raising hell down there and the mm. government was after them because it was against the government and everything. So I went down there and um, the guy that was my contact from the magazine said, I'm not giving you the money, man. I said, you got to give me out. I'm going to do the story. <laughs> he said, I'll give you part of it, he said, because I'm never going back to America. I said, what do you mean? He said, I'm never going back to America. He said, I found a place I'm going to live the rest of my life. And after I'd been there a couple of weeks, I I could see why hmm. he wanted to live there. So I ended up living there for almost a year, too. <laughs> <laughs> the women were beautiful. 
every day we walking down, I said, stop the cab, stop the cab. We were going down Copacabana Beach, man. I said, stop the car, stop the car. And I ran out. I said, there are naked women running down the beach. <laughs> and I went over there, and it looked from, you know, it wasn't that far away. These were naked women, gorgeous, all kinds of colors, running down the beach with no clothes on. I said, I'm going to stay here. But I found out when I got closer, they had string bikinis, which wasn't in America at that time. Which looks like nothing, no clothes from far away, you know. And then a lot of women, they never put anything on top. They were bare-breasted. They were just, they were much more um, free, the women down there were. They wanted to talk to you. It wasn't about, you know, they wanted to have sex with you. They thought you were cute, you know, or whatever. It wasn't about sex like that down there. It was like, that's how they got to know you, who you were. And if they liked you, then they want to stay with you, you know, or not, you know. I was falling in and I love every day. You know? So many beautiful women, all kinds of colors, all kinds of colors, man. Dark, 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 bright, 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 black woman with black curly hair with blue eyes. Oh, my God, I was like in heaven. <laughs> What's up, family? If you're enjoying this episode, do us a solid by leaving us a five-star rating or reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. We appreciate the support. So on that note, we're going to get back into the show. Peace. But it opened me up to being, I think that's where I really found my true creative spirit. I started painting there and writing poetry. And that was like 68. And uh, that Brazil really opened me up to the love feeling and the feeling for other human beings. All all that warm, fuzzy stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, it just opened me up to my creative juices. So when I came back, I really started painting a lot. And uh, my pictures changed, you know. I mean, I was doing good pictures then, but there, for me, the most important thing that I learned in going along and taking pictures was that a picture doesn't work unless it touches somebody. You can't just have a picture. You have to make a photograph. People take, A lot of people take pictures, snapshots, but that isn't what it is. It's a picture that's going to live for a long time and the only way that's going to live is how much emotion you put into it how much of that you capture but you have to be there and make that happen you have to feel it and i tell my students you take pictures with your heart and not with your eyes mm. and that's that's the bottom line <clears throat> if you want something that's going to live down through the ages like great art does it has to touch people and if it touches people, then it'll live. It'll live on as long as people are alive and it touches them. It's so important because a lot of younger photographers, they take a lot of pictures, you know, because it looks good or because they compose it nice or they shoot like nowadays with all this automatic. They shoot like 250 pictures to get one shot. Mm-hmm. When I was coming along, you had 36 pictures, you know, and they weren't digital. You had to go develop them and print them after that. It gets so, expensive. 
you had to think about what it was that you were going to shoot. You had to be there and really feel what it was. You weren't just shooting click, 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 click. So it's just a different, different style, you know, of working. It sounds like being in Brazil, you got to experience humanity. You have to be a little bit more free, see what how other people live. Yeah, because the people were very loving and very kind. I didn't see people whip their children. They would pull them and talk to them. They didn't beat on them, you know, like mm -hmm. in America, you know, beat on you in a minute. Mm -hmm. But it was just, it was, the, it was the loving vibe. I heard music every day. It seemed like everybody played the guitar. I mean, I met all these young kids who really later on became major stars, you know. I met Caetano, I met Gilberto Gil. I met all these young kids who were out in the street, you know, making music. And they became great stars later on. But I met all those kids, you know. I wasn't much older than them, you know, at that time. I was in my 20s, 24, 25, 26, something like that. So um, it was a beautiful... And when I went there, I went there at the height of, you know, the Black Arts Movement. So they wanted to know everything about what I was doing as an artist, you know. You know, um, they thought I was one of the Black Panthers. They, all because, you know, the way I dressed. And I had a big fro, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, you know, this is 68, you know. And then 69 went to Suriname. But that's another story. But I think that um, the thing that really saved me, I mean, I when I came back, I, I got into the union, the International Photographers and Motion Picture Industry. In uh, 1969, I got voted in. And that allowed me to make a really nice living and make nice money, so that changed my whole lifestyle. I was able to travel and do what I wanted to do because I made enough money. My kids were in school. Uh, and I was divorced by that time, so I was running around all over the world, Paris, London, Rome, Italy. I went everywhere. Mm -hmm. I'd work on a movie and make some money, and then I would go somewhere else. I wasn't paying attention to all. I didn't want to go on any marches. You know, I went to Mississippi right after Meg Harris was killed. I got there the, that week or the week after. And Light Magazine gave me a whole bunch of film because I'd gotten a grant from um, the Whitney people at that time. The Whitney, the newspaper, they used to give grants to photographers. I got a grant that year. And I think um, that was the second photographer. Mario Jones was the first. And they had never given grants to photographers. You know, after Ansel Adams was on the cover of Time Magazine, that's when photography became an art. Before that, it was a craft. Mm -hmm. And if you argued with artists or you argued with the art establishment, you go into a gallery, they wouldn't show your work. You're a photographer, that's a craft, that's not an art. You know, big arguments. But then, 79, Ansel Adams was on the cover of Time Magazine, and he sold that photograph, um, Moonrise Over Hernandez, for $1,500, and people went crazy. Mm -hmm. Nobody paid fifteen hundred dollars. <laughs> what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. You know, fifteen hundred dollars. That's a thousand five hundred dollars. You know, and now people are selling photographs of five times, six times, seven times, thirty, yeah. fifty, sixty, hundred thousand dollars. People paying for photographs. Yeah, it has changed. It has changed. 
you know, was 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 interesting is it sounds like you have mm-hmm. you have this real interesting combination of pride, like black pride that you 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 learned from your family, from your big family in Ohio. Then you met right. Gordon Parks and he, he dropped that jewel on you saying take negative energy and turn it into something positive, right? And then you have right. your experience in Brazil, which allowed you to probably open up within yourself and discover more of mm-hmm. your own humanity and how we're all connected. Right. And you have like these like right. really interesting moments of your life that as photographers, like that definitely influences how we see the world. Like, would you agree? Like these things have shaped your perspective of how you like things that you oh, choose yeah. to photograph. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, after I went to Brazil, I went to Suriname and Suriname is in the upper right-hand corner of South America. And I lived with the Juca people. And the Jucas lived in the bush. They didn't live in the cities. They had their villages. And I did a whole series on the, on the Jucas and how they lived and what they did there. And that was another experience that let me understand that black people live everywhere in the world. White man has been lying to you that he's in charge. The white man is not in charge of shit. Mm-hmm. The world is mostly black. Yep. And black history didn't start with slavery in America. Black history started many, many centuries ago. Mm-hmm. The world was black at one time. It's still black. That's the secret. The world is mostly black. And the influences that have happened in the world have been mostly from black people. And I'll tell you, all the creativity because of the melanin. We have melanin. Melanin is an activator. Why do you think these brothers that play basketball and football come up with new moves? Hmm. It's because it's in their blood. It's in the melanin. You can just look at the way white people dance and black people. White people never have the rhythm and the movement that black people have. Never. I don't care how long they live or how much dance and lessons they take. They just can't make those moves. Football, basketball, if we get into something, we change it. Look how much basketball changed when the brothers got into it. Look how much football changed when the brothers got all the All the games of movement and thought come from the black experience. You even mentioned it. Um, you know, hip-hop jazz. went all over the world. Hip-hop, hip-hop all right. Over the world. Everybody wanted to be hip-hop. Yeah, and now you, you, you got used Chinese to... Chinese hip-hop. Gangdo, hip-hop, come on. <laughs> And you black said it. people, the world is black. You used to travel black all the way to New York. You used to travel all the way to New York to 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 watch these jazz shows, right? And you know, jazz is a music form that was transformed by black folks. And you know, um, you're speaking about Gordon Parks. Gordon Parks changed photography. You know, yeah. You know, so I, I agree. Like whatever we get into, we eventually change how how that thing is That's done. Right. That's right. And I think that the thing about art right now and why these museums are opening up um, because they don't have African-Americans in their collections. They've been sidelined for so long and now the world is looking, oh, do you have a painting by Romer Burt? No. Mm-hmm. Do you have a painting by Roy D. No. Do you have some pictures by Roy D. Carava? Uh, one, you know, they've been half-stepping. Oh, yeah. 
you know, behind racism. Well, black people are not as good artists as white people. You know, you have a culture. The culture is ours and always has been. But that's the lie. And they beat it into you. Slavery was abusive. It's still in our blood. You know, it's still in our blood. Mm -hmm. We have to be very, very careful to care and love each other as black people and be forgiving. We have to be more forgiving of our own people than of anybody else. We abuse each other more, sometimes more than white people. Where are all the drugs sold by black people in our communities, man? Come on. Anytime you start calling your woman a hoe, that bitch, this, and that, that's just, they making money. It's bullshit. How are you going to be that way? Your mother brought you into the world. How are you going to abuse a woman? Hmm. You're a fool. You're a fool. You don't know who you are. You don't know where you come from. You don't know what your life is really about. Anytime that you can abuse a black woman, you see, well, black woman is your savior. What does that boy do when they stand on his neck? What did he say? Mama, he called for his mama. Mm -hmm. How many brothers, when life gets tough, who do they call for? Their mama. They don't say, Daddy, save me. They call mama. They, why? You ever think about that? Mm -hmm. That's the center of life. In slavery, they mixed you all up because they knew that the woman had the power to make strong men. Look at all those tribes coming from Africa, man. You know, look. Men don't make women. Women make men. They carry you for nine months or ever how long until you come out. Life is not carried by man. Life is carried in the womb of the woman. The woman is the powerhouse. And if black men could get that together, we could just we could just walk over these people. We don't need any war. Mm -hmm. You don't need to fight anybody. Just get with the black woman and make some powerful individuals. And they'll do it. They'll take it over. Look what these young people are doing nowadays. I mean, I, look, I told my son, I looked at your Peter, I said, all I do is watch TV. <laughs> I watch the computer. I watch the show. I mean, I'm not as bad as, you know, I used to be, but, it, you know, this technology, you know, we first it was the age where there were hammers and picks and they were throwing spears and then they knew how to make a shovel and a wheel and then it was the mechanical age and then it was the this age and iron age and now it's the electronic age and the electronic age is going to go into something else so far out that we're not ready. Science and and religion, so-called religion, are going to come together in this next age. We'll be able to handle the movement of light and sound in our bodies, because that's what we're made of. We'll be able to utilize that energy. We don't know now because we're stupid. We want to kill each other and you know <laughs> be racist, and instead of using our minds to advance mankind, you see. And that's where it's going to come. And black people, again, I think, are going to be the savior of this planet. Mm 
the black man is going to be savior of this earth. As who says, Richard Brown says, yeah, I said it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I said it. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you, you're yeah. dropping some some real heavy jewels right now, you know, um, about history and about, you know, black folks and identity and understanding who we are and how important unity is. And... Yes. You know, um, you are one of the co-founders of Kamoinge, right? And yes. You know, I looked it up. Kamoinge is a Kenyan word that means group effort. And it sounds like a lot of the, the things you just mentioned fall in alignment with Kamoinge and what that collective stood for. Like, how did, right. how did Kamoinge come about? I, I, for me, it came about out of a necessity um, because in the media, we were being pictured in really negative ways. You know, the average black person was being portrayed in negative ways. And we felt that, like, we should change that as photographers, as image makers. We should show the beauty of who we are and not all these negative images because we know we're beautiful. We know that we're talented. We know that we have all this. Why do we wait for somebody else to say we are? We can say it ourselves. We can define our own destiny. You don't have to wait for somebody else to define your, your destiny. And if you do, when you get to where you're going to go, you know, you're not going to own it. Somebody else has to be the one to us, you're in the gate of, you know, fortunes. We have it within us to do this ourselves. Absolutely. So in being one of the founders, one of my main talks was always about know your craft. Know what you're doing. Make a great photograph. Whether you're photographing black people, whether you're photographing orange people, whether you're stars, moon, earth, whatever. Make sure that you are making a great photograph and not just another picture. And that takes work because first of all, you have to feel. You have to feel and see and click at the same time. That's not easy. That takes a rhythm, you know, because most people say, oh, that was a nice picture. Well, you didn't take it, you were talking. <laughs> While you were talking, the picture was happening, but you were talking about, oh, that's a great picture. You just say, click, did you see that? I got it, you know? Wasting time. Wasting time. Arguing with other people. Gossiping. Doing all these things. She's got this and I don't have that. They have this and I don't have that. Why they have it and I don't have it. I'm poor. I don't have nothing. They have all this. You have it within you. You have everything that you want. You want to be rich? Think about how you want to be rich. Don't think about how poor you are. Hmm. If you think it, your, your subconscious will give you whatever you ask for. Black man, white man ain't got nothing to do with that. That's on you. You define your own destiny by desiring what you want. That's a gift from the creator. You know, you want it. When you were a kid and you wanted a bicycle, how many times a day did you think about it? All day. Aha. 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 And it materialized. 
and it finally materialized, right? Mm-hmm. I, so, I'm, I'm a big believer. Thing. I'm a big believer in this philosophy. Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. I manifest um, a lot of the things that happen in my life. I, I manifest and I believe in um, positive thought and the universe is a magnet. It, it'll attract right. whatever, whatever we think of, good or bad. That's right. It, it will attract That's right. us. You know, so That's I'm a big right. believer in that, man. Um, That's right. So watch where your mind is. Exactly. <laughs> and and the seeds that you plant, yeah. the seeds you plant in your mind, and the seeds that you plant, you're gonna will get. You're gonna one day. Yep. Sure. Absolutely. And then you're responsible mm-hmm. for the for the harvest. You know, your thoughts That's are right. responsible for that harvest. So I, I agree with That's you, 100. percent right. Yeah, it's a great it's a great life. You have a chance as a human being in this form to have a great life if you want it. Yeah. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> Don't drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> Once you drink Kool-Aid, you know, oh, this is cool. You know, you forget about defining your own destiny. That's your, that's your birthright. That is your spiritual birthright to define your destiny as given to you by mm-hmm. the creator. You have it, you want it. Don't forget about what white people did to you and are going to do it. That's a waste of time because mm-hmm. they're not going to change. They're not going to change. You cannot change a racist. You can move the laws and say, well, you can't do this and you can't do that. That's still not going to change their heart. The only change that's going to come is when men's hearts are changed. The only way to do that is, first of all, if you have you have your heart changed, don't be going around messing with people. It's not your job to correct people. It's not your job to police people or do any of that. That's the creator's job. You know, the creator made all these humans. You ain't got no right to mess with anybody because you didn't make anybody. You didn't make any of these people on planet Earth. The right you have to mess with them. You didn't make them. You don't own anybody. You didn't even own yourself. You came in with nothing. When you go out, you're going to have nothing. Hmm. So what's this thing about this is mine and that's mine. That's my woman. That's my children. That's my car. That's my house. That's my money. You don't own none of that shit. Use it. It's fun. It's great. But don't think that that's it. Or that's the reality. And contribute something to life. Contribute to some people. Contribute something positive that will live on. If you treat somebody else nice, nine times out of ten, they're going to treat somebody else nice, too. You know, what does it take to say good morning to somebody and lift their spirits? Good morning. How are you? Some people say, oh, fuck you. You, you know, it's, you know, it's really interesting about that. You know, I, I lived in Ghana for eight months, and you know, everybody spoke. Everybody said good morning. The 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 woman at That's the right. food stand. Right. You know, um, if I'm in a if I'm in a car and I'm passing by and she looks up and sees me, she's like, hey. And if I if I miss the day of my That's fruit, right. the next day I go there. She's like, right. where have you been? I haven't seen you in so long. I'm like, it's it's been two days. You know, but that's the community vibe. And I remember coming back to the U.S. after experiencing that and feeling awkward saying saying hello to somebody, a a complete stranger, or saying good morning to a stranger. And the person Mm. is either 
really caught off guard and surprised or they think that I'm about to ask them for some money or sometimes they ignore it. And I just thought that was mm-hmm. a, a culture shock coming back to that, you know? It is. So. Anytime you change energy between you and another person, that generates a positive vibration. Hmm. It's like music, you know? You go to a jazz club and hear somebody play something, da, 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 you say, yeah. You move with it because it feels good. It's the same as saying hello to somebody. It's the same as somebody is sad and unhappy and you put your arms around them. Not about sex. You put your arms around them. They feel better. It's your energy. It is your generating energy. It's the same as when you know you meet somebody and I'm sure you've met people in your life, and for the first time, I don't like that motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> you ain't even met you just met him for five days. Yeah, I right don't off like the bat, right off the bat. And other people, and other people, you meet right away. It's like, oh, I like that person. Mm-hmm. Never seen them before, but you like them right away. Energy. What is transpiring? It's your exchange. energy. Yeah. You are radiating energy. You are, you are energy radiator all the time. Mm-hmm. You feel mostly with water. You know, we forget that. We think we're solid. We think we're a controller. You know, let go. Let go. Let go. Relax, man. So, wait, you, life you just mentioned something really interesting, all right? So you, you, you just broke down energy, this energy exchange, and then you related it to the fact that we're made up of water. And I know that... You know, you, you you sort of got into, after photography, or even while you were still doing photography, you got into painting, and then you also started, like, a series on studying water, right? Yes. You, you have a uh, collection of images about water. Is yes. there a relation to how you see energy, you know, in the world, in the universe, and why you decided to pursue a project based on water? Yeah, you grabbed me. I ain't nothing to do it. What did you I learn? I was sitting what? by the water. And I was sitting by the water, and I said, oh, wow. Look at that. I said, I wonder if I could capture what I just saw. It was so fast. It happened in a flash. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, man, if I could capture what I saw, and people could see that, and they realize that, you know, water is in everything. In the universe, nothing can live without water. Mm-hmm. We are, there's sweat, there's tears, there's uh, fog, there's mist, there are clouds, there's the ocean, there's stream. You know how much water we live with in this planet? And we don't think anything about it. We don't think anything about it. That's why they're out there fucking up the universe now. They don't realize they're killing themselves. Mm-hmm. All these things that were made for you were to keep you alive and to keep your body oxygen. You need oxygen. You need all this stuff is here. And they're trying to destroy it in the cause of money. You can't do that. Are you, are the you familiar with... going to talk back. Are you familiar the with... The universe is going to talk back, brother. The mm. universe is going to talk back. <laughs> she's going to heal herself. She's going to heal herself. And That's right. If healing herself okay. means getting rid of us in order to heal, then, yeah, that's, that's what's going to happen. You, you are not invincible. 
No, we're not. The enormity of the universe. They don't think about that. You look at the moon, it's oh the moon, oh the sun. Yeah, but how far away are they and what does it mean to you? All this stuff swirling around in the universe that you don't even understand. The stars, the black holes, the, the, all of this stuff, the other planets. And we're down here on this little spot acting like we own everything. Yeah. And we're all this big and we're bad. You know, we ain't nothing, man. Let the, let, let the universe burp. All the universe has to go burp. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're finished. Wow. You're gone. Your history. Let, let the universe burp a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we take ourselves too serious. We think we're all that and we're not. You know, we really aren't. But you only get something back when you add something to the pot. You know, you have to add, you should leave the world a, a, as better a place as you can with your energy rather than the negative energy, you know? Mm. Give something back. And I think that it is my feeling, it is my belief that when you give of your heart back to the universe, the universe gives back to you. You want to be successful in what you're doing? Then give something that the universe needs. Give back. Give back and you'll get. You'll get more back than what you give. I believe that. That's true, but we forget that. You know, we get we get carried away. We got some money, and you know, you know, and paper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Wow. So we got wrong away from photography, man. <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just soaking up all the jewels right now. You know. A lot of a lot of good information, and you know, I don't. I, yes, this is a podcast about photography, but it's also a podcast about uh, your lived experiences and the things that you are saying determine the kind of work that you make and the work that you leave behind. And these are your principles. These are the things that you you know that you abide by, and you believe in the power yes. and energy of the universe. And That's if right. you didn't have those beliefs, you wouldn't be. Adric Cowens, you know, you wouldn't be leaving behind such a, you know, extensive body of work and insights for us to, like, be inspired by. So that's just as important as what camera did you use and what film did you, you know, how do you process it? Yeah. Right, right. What are you, what are you up to now? Are you still, are you still creating anything? Oh, yeah, every day. Okay. And somebody asked me to say, Andrew, what are you doing now? You up to no good? I said, oh, yeah, every day I'm up to no good. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing now? I ain't, I, I, you know, I'm trying to make new visual language, man. I'm trying to get people out of some of these old paradigms and begin to look at images in a new way. Mm-hmm. You know, to look at images because you make the images for the people, you know, you don't make the images. You make the images because the spirit directs you to it. You know? And if you're open enough to receive the spirit into your heart or soul or mind or whatever, then you reflect that. 
I think that's what all artists do, you know, do great work. You have to let the spirit lead you, and you have to be open to it. And you can't be open to it if you're worried about this and that. You know, artists have to have time to themselves to reflect. I think it's very important. You can't be busy, 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 busy all the time. You have to stop and slow down and allow spirit to catch up, whether you catch up with spirit, I don't know when we had it, but you have to let the influences of, of things permeate you, you know? That's very important. Somebody was talking the other day about, you know, the work that they did and how they didn't know what to do until they stopped and slowed down. Yeah. And then they realized kind of what direction they should take because they slowed down long enough, you know. People are so busy now. They've always been busy, but now we're super busy. Mm-hmm. Everybody's on their cell phone 24-7. That's the new communication center. You're on your cell phone all the time. Take people's cell phones away from them. What would they do? And a good example of that is when the World Trade went down and they couldn't get online and they didn't know why. I can't, my phone's not working. Well, you think about it, stupid. You're working with electronic things up there in the sky, bouncing off, and shit blew up. And nothing's working. Your communication network is down. You better start talking to people. <laughs> How many people get killed every year on their cell phones? Yeah, Think walking into it. the middle of the street, right? Yes. Yes. You know, this is a little tension glare grab with these cell phones. Mm-hmm. They mesmerize you to the point that you even get where you are. Yeah, and um, now this is there's so many. It's a camera now, also, right? So, this oh, it's got everything, man. Everything, you know. And I imagine soon I have one to wipe your ass, and then you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Just everything. <laughs> wow, you know, um, yeah, you know the, you know, you you came from the era where you know you had to like send film out and wait for it to come back and now we have like a, a, a camera we have film we have a, a dark room all of that in our pocket mm-hmm. you know um right uh, uh, instant like, gratification exactly you know if you were to pick up a camera for the first time today what do you like if you were you know starting college you know, the same way you went to Ohio University, but with everything going on in the world right now, someone gave you a camera for the first time, what would you go out and photograph? Oh, that's a good question. <clears throat> well, I think knowing me, if I was going to college and they gave me a camera nowadays, I'd probably go out and photograph something that would be impossible to photograph. Hmm. I would be looking for something that I could get with this electronic thing that I couldn't get with anything else. I'd have to think about what I would what I would try to photograph. You know, maybe I'd try and photograph the air. <laughs> I don't know. It would be I would I would have to be something 
that um, I'd have to think about it. What can I do with this piece of electronics that would make a, a photographic statement? I don't know. I'd have to think about it. I think about it now. I try to work with, you know, what's important to capture, mm-hmm. you know. So I would have to reflect on how I feel about whatever it is that I'm seeing. You know, if I saw something in the world that moved me to do it, then that's what it would be. You know, um, I mean, I'm starting to photograph light right now, uh, light structures. And somebody asked me, what's that about? And I said, I don't know what it's about. That's why I'm photographing. You're, you're figuring it out. To see what it is. Yeah. To see what it is. I don't, I don't, I don't understand I think structures of light have information that I'm not aware of yet. Um, well, I think you answered. So I think you. This. I think you answered, right? Um, you didn't give a specific thing, but in your answer, I think in your response is the answer where you said you would attempt to photograph something that is almost impossible to photograph. And it sounds like you approach yeah. you, you you use the camera as a tool to research and observe. Right. And I think that's mm-hmm. really I think that's I think that's a concept and a philosophy that I've never heard before. But mm-hmm. after hearing it has just shifted the way that I think about photography. You know, um I'm I'm definitely gonna take that back and, and digest it. And, and see what comes up comes up for me after that. I think that's a really interesting way to approach this craft is to use it as a research vehicle and, and do right. all types of experiments to, to, to push it and learn more about whatever it is that we're photographing. Right, 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 right. Don't think about the obvious. Think out of the box. This is Andrew Cowens, and you're tuned into the Black Podcast. I want to give a big shout out to everyone who tuned into this episode. Thank you for listening. The Black Shutter Podcast is hosted by me, Idris Talib Solomon. To subscribe to the Black Shutter Podcast, head over to iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. When you get there, show us some love by dropping a five-star rating or leaving a review. This will help with our rankings, which essentially helps more black photographers get exposure. Make sure to check us out online at blackshutterpodcast.com to read the show notes, learn more about our guests, and check out some of their work. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Peace. Until next time.